Let's continue worship with a scripture reading for uh, today's message from Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm glad you're with us today. If I've not met you, my name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. Um, If you're a guest, welcome. Um, Today, believe it or not, y'all, is the first week of Advent, um, which is the church season that consists of about four Sundays or 25 days roughly leading up uh, to Christmas morning. Advent apparently uh, finds its roots uh, back to the fourth century. Uh, Every year, Advent calls us to two practices, um, rejoicing and waiting. Uh, That's historically been uh, the invitation of the season of Advent. Um, And if you ask me, there could be no better contrasting sentiments than rejoicing and waiting to this season, uh, in which I find myself worrying and hurrying (laughs) um, with all the things that are need to be, needing to be done. Um, it calls us to rejoice in, in that it calls us to remember uh, that Jesus came. Uh, Jesus came as a light into our darkness. Uh, just meditate on that for a year. Um, get back to me. Came to us like the morning sun after a long, cruel, dark night. That's the image the Bible gives to the advent of Jesus. Calls us to rejoicing in that he came. It calls us to waiting in that it invites us to remember that he has promised that one day he will come again and put the world, as N.T. Wright says, put the world to rights. He'll make it right again, make all things new, to fully redeem what he purchased by his blood on the cross. Therefore, Advent is a looking back and a looking forward, right? Right? to looking back in that we know and remember that Jesus has acted in coming and dying, and to looking forward that he promises to act again and one day return. So the the point of Advent, y'all, and the reason we're calling it right Advent, not not Christmas, is it it helps us, helps our hearts stay rooted in the why behind the what. If you ask me, the most important question of the day is always why. And Christmas is an example of one of those holidays uh, that Christians and non-Christians both claim as their own. So there's this unspoken, subtle dissonance in the air in this season. As we 
walk around and do our living and listen to the radio and go to stores, and we hear in one moment, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, and then, and then right after that, hark the herald angels sing, without skipping a beat, and everyone thinks this is normal. Uh, I say, I was going to say, like, I mean, it's kind of tension, but it's like no one really notices that there's dissonance sometimes if we're not paying attention. Have, have you ever paid attention to the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Better theology than comes from most of our pulpits on Sunday mornings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Come on, man. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give a second birth, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. I mean, y'all, richer theology than we get most weeks on Sunday morning, right? It puts our pulpits to shame, right? Right in the middle of the grocery store, over the loudspeaker, and no one even notices, right? And in, as like, and right as you're like hearing the lyrics and you're saying, wait, what? Like, what is your mind just like catching up with the depth and the richness of it? I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus comes over, right? Or even the better one, you know, grandma got run over by a reindeer, right? Coming home, you know that one? And then you're like, oh, okay, back to buying things. Uh, but, but, but of course, they're buying things I don't need for people I don't like. That's the thing, isn't it? Right? Uh, just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, but of course, there are people that recognize um, there is dissonance. Uh, a lot of secular people recognize that. And of course, their solution is to quit singing the old spirituals. Um, but there is this confusing and conflicting opinion concerning the meaning of this whole thing we're about to embark on, whether you want to or not, right? And of course, you have, we have moneymakers who have, who, who have uh, successfully turned this season into uh, the most over-commercialized, consumer-driven holiday that our society knows, right? So let, let me just uh, put my cards on the table so you know where... I, I, I'm, where I stand and what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. In my, my house, we are closely approaching the Griswolds at my house because every year my resistance lessens to more and more decor and we just keep, so we have like this tiny little brick ranch. We have two Christmas trees in our house, okay? And we're just getting cranked up. Like we're just, I mean, we, I, I am so excited about my kids opening toys that they will throw away in three months on, on Christmas morning. I am, I'm re- I really am. I'm excited about it, right? I mean, like I, we started with a budget for our kids' gifts and like, I'm like, well, okay, but maybe we can just, you know, right? Like, I, I'm excited. I'm, I mean, we're, we're in, man. We're in. Okay, we're all in. On, there's something beautiful, I think, about stirring up generosity in your heart in this season, right? Our house, like, turned upside down, right? Love it and hate it at the same time. In no way am I saying that you, you know, sh- you know sh- celebrate Christmas, you know, it's just secular, right, right? Or go to Christmas parties or be generous. I mean, some, some Christians seem to have that perspective, right? Christian it's like a Scrooge, right? Um, and and some, some, some Christians can, in the name of Christianity, just be Scrooges and kind of turn it into this self-righteous thing. But if there's any holiday that we should or should, could, should be able to get behind, it's this one because it's ours, right? I mean, my encouragement to you is, man, get in there. Rejoice. Like, 
Don't, don't whine because it's become commercialized and secularized. Dude, reclaim the truth of the meaning. Don't just whine about it because we get to rejoice in this holiday, if I, in my opinion, at such a deeper and more meaningful level, level than just gifts and lights. Okay? I think, in fact, I think, I think our joy as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, your joy in this holiday, in generosity, uh, should far outweigh everyone. It should just outshine everyone else's because it's ours. This is our, this is our thing because we know that we give and rejoice because he has been given. There's a deeper meaning here that can get lost, can it? <laughs> in the hurry, in the busy, in the superficiality. And we get to let our hearts reflect a goodness and generosity that so far outshines any goodness or generosity known to man. That's what we get. So the invitation of Advent, I think, is to refuse to be distracted by the over-commercialized, consumer-driven holiday Christmas has become and instead press into the reality behind the lights and the feasting. There is a reality behind all this. I think, guys, if you will allow it, God will meet you in a personal way at every turn throughout this next month. If you will allow it, I think he will. I think every time you see beautiful lights in the dark, God may be nudging your heart to say to you, whispering in your ear, it was into your darkness that my light came. You could let that happen. <laughs> you could let the, I mean, you know, it's, it's no coincidence we celebrate this at winter solstice, the darkest time of the year. And so how do we celebrate? Well, we put lights everywhere. Well, why do we do that? Well, there was someone who came a long time ago who said, I am the light. And can't we, in some ways, let what we see around us, as, as annoying as it may be to some of us, you got to get up on that ladder and staple things to your thing, and oh, God, all the, you know, to let the light say something to us at a deeper level, you know, that there is a true light that shines in the darkness. I think every time we feast with family and friends, God may be wanting to whisper in your heart, nudge in your heart, there is a feast that will never end. Hmm? When, I, when God writes all the wrongs in the world and, and remakes the earth in accordance with his goodness and abundance. It's no coincidence, y'all, that Jesus on several occasions compares the kingdom of God to a feast. And every time we get to gather with people we love and tolerate, we can Allow the, the abundance of the table remind us of the truth of an abundance that comes only in. Jesus said something about how we respond, how, I guess, we interact with food. You know, we, we have, we, all of us interact with food. We, you know, we have a perspective on food. And he, he, he placed himself in that arena when he said, I am the bread of life. There is something he was trying to communicate to us. That he himself is the true feast, the true food that sustains. And I think if we will have ears to hear and a heart to feel amongst all of the busyness and chaos and the hurry, if we will take the time to recognize that God could meet us even amongst the stress and the busy and the hurry. So over uh, the next month, my invitation to you um, is to press into the depth and mystery of the creator of all things, okay? That's the paradigm, y'all. <laughs> Uh, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, he is called the Ancient of Days, Elohim, right? Entering into his own creation, not to assert his rightful authority through power and strength and subdue his enemies, but to suffer and die. Huh? 
the maker of all things, condescending himself to the level on, on his created beings that he spoke into existence, not to assert his rightful authority, but to suffer and die and take all of the brokenness that his enemies had brought on themselves, on himself. Like wonder of wonders, y'all. Mystery of mysteries. If all the books in the world were aimed at comprehending this one reality, we'd run out of ink. There's no way in which we can accurately paint a picture that can fully describe what is happening in Christmas, the incarnation, right? That's why throughout the New Testament, Jesus is repetitively called the mystery of God. Because what they're acknowledging is that there is something here that is so wonderful, so mysterious, that no matter how hard we try, we will not comprehend the depths of what we are celebrating in this season that divinity wrapped itself in flesh and came down, right? So all I want to do today is invite you into a perspective of this holiday that, like I said, you're about to endure whether you want to or not, right? I, I want to invite you into a perspective of this holiday that gives your heart permission to rejoice. So just sit with that sentence for a second, that phrase. Permission to rejoice. In it and through it, despite all the stressful and unenjoyable bits that might come along with it. So our scripture today takes us back almost 3,000 years, the scripture that, that Mike read earlier. 3,000 years ago, set almost 700 years before Christ uh, came, when the prophet Isaiah spoke to his people in exile. And, and what he speaks of, what we read earlier, is a light coming, right? And, and it comes, the light that the prophet speaks of, it comes not to a lovely, well-lit city, right? Not to your neighborhood of sub with all the lights on it and Christmas lights everywhere. It comes to a people walking in darkness, doing life actually in darkness, dwelling in deep darkness. Some translations might say great darkness. And so the first thing to understand is that the world is a dark place. That's the first understanding, that's the first admission you have to make as a Christian to understand and celebrate Christmas as a Christian, is that uh, the world is in fact a very dark place. Unlike other religions, Christianity does not whitewash the world, y'all. As much as uh, some people would accuse Christians of doing this, Christianity doesn't do it. It doesn't deal, Christianity does not deal with suffering by saying, well, to the cancer, the doctor's actually bad, so it's all perspective. Christianity doesn't say that. It doesn't tolerate that kind of nonsense. It says it's suffering, it's evil, it's wrong, and it's dark, right? Christianity doesn't whitewash the world. So, so, fast, forward, so fast forward 700 years from Isaiah into the time of Jesus. Let's just think about the nativity scene. Okay, let's think about the time when Jesus was born. The world where Jesus was born was full of darkness, y'all. Violence, death, the kind of violence which our stomachs would turn the very thought of, right? Military-occupied state. Think of all the horrors and injustices that go on when one people group is oppressing and exploiting another. Endless, okay? Political leaders who claim divine right to rule. We're not even gonna touch on that, right? And therefore... <laughs> divine, oh, they registered. Um, uh, who claimed, Caesar uh, claimed divine right to rule and therefore ruled with all the more aggression and violence. The birth of Jesus, right? Mary and Joseph were forced to leave for a census. You know, poor little Mary pregnant, right? During which state-led murders of babies 
in small backtown villages were being carried out. Not even to mention the Romans' appetite for what they call crucifixion, which was the means by which they maintained their power over subdued people groups, right? And when we think about darkness like that and ancient civilizations, even not so ancient, 200, 300 years ago, just before the discovery of antibiotics, right, or modern medicines or electricity, we tend to think of times much darker than our own, don't we? In fact, as I sat on a lovely patio, sipping hot coffee overlooking a meticulously manicured downtown square lawn on a beautiful crisp morning, as I wrote this, it was very easy, it can be very easy to fall into the thinking that humanity has defeated the darkness, can it? I mean, isn't that the promise of the suburbs? <laughs> right? Or isn't that the promise of the country? Right? Uh, the, you know, this, the, uh, the rural areas, you know? You know, the, you know, out away from the dirty city where people can't be trusted, right? Isn't, wasn't that the promise of, of democratic notion of, of the rule of law? That we can, that we can finally establish a society that's just and where, and where darkness doesn't thrive? I mean, for many of us, it's easy to believe that evil and darkness has been dealt with. We live such comfortable, insulated lives, and it lulls us into believing that the world's just fine, right? I mean, people still die, and there's wars, but, you know, those are elsewhere. In our experience, very often, because of scientific advances and LED lights <laughs> and the rule of law, all of these things can serve to convince us that darkness is just not a threat anymore. We've progressed past it. And if we miss this, then we will have no reason to rejoice when Christmas comes around. If we choose to whitewash the world and ignore the darkness, then of course, who cares if a light's dawning? Turn on the lights. We have backlit computer screens now, right? And if we are content with superficial surface level understandings of society or are swept up in human progress, right, in the power of positive thinking, then you will miss it. You will miss Christmas. But if you are honest, and if you've lived a little, we know the darkness is just as present today as it was back then, right? And you'd actually be hard-pressed to prove on any level that humanity, that the human heart has in any way changed since the time of Isaiah, since the time of Jesus. Today, y'all, the darkness has just moved to socially acceptable things like greed or judgmentalism or brazen sexual indulgence. Or it's moved to the subterranean levels of society, right? So on the surface, your neighborhood might like shame Thomas Kincaid Christmas paintings, right? Maybe it's like the perfect ideal of the Christmas suburb. I mean, the HOA had to publicly execute some people, but you know, they worked it out and, and now, now it's the right kind of decorations, right? Uh, but if you were to go inside those houses... If, if you could look into the hearts of those divorced families and estranged daughters and rebellious sons, the brokenness maybe could, maybe should bring you to tears. And you might be saying, shoot, I don't even look at my neighbor's house. I got enough brokenness in my own house, right? And it's true. For, for all the darkness that the light bulb and democracy promised to vanquish, the darkness remains. For most of us, I don't need to press you on this because you've lived a little. But let's just meditate for a moment on the metaphor Isaiah uses. The metaphor he uses, y'all, historically translate to every culture, to every time, to every place, but maybe a little bit less in our own, and I'll explain why. God has long used light and darkness to communicate his impact on the human soul. In the beginning, there was darkness, and there was the abyss, right? Dark and the waters. And God 
um, orders both of them, overcomes both of them for human flourishing. The psalmist calls God, God's word a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. In John 1, the apostle John says, Jesus was the light of men. Right? He calls Jesus the true light, the lights of the world. So what's God trying to say? Well, he's appealing to your imagination and understanding of light, which, which almost every person in the world can understand. However, in the modern era, like I'm saying, the metaphor loses its edge. Why? Because we don't treasure the light nor fear the dark like the ancients did. Right? We, we walk in a room and flip on the light switch and magically light fills the room. The ancients worship the sun because they knew their desperate dependency on the light. They stayed inside during the night because they understood the danger of dark. See, few of us can relate to desperately awaiting the sunrise to bring safety from the darkness. We just don't understand. We have night vision goggles, right? We just don't understand the kind of desperation the ancients had and understood of how much they needed light. Even Despite our modern advances, however, I think we can still understand the metaphor if we think about it. I mean, all of you have walked into a room that was dark with the lights off or been in a room where the power goes off. Anyone? Like if we just did that right now as a social experiment, you would be very uncomfortable, right? You have an instinctual discomfort when darkness happens and you immediately want to remedy it, right? Someone turn on the lights. Or if you're driving and your lights are not on, you pull out of the parking lot where it was lit and you get to the street and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I'm going fast in the dark, right? You flip those lights on, that was scary. Or if you're, if you're ever in camp, anyone ever been camping? Anyone camp anymore? <laughs> and then maybe your flashlight ran out of batteries. That's not a fun feeling, all right? You better hope that fire's going strong. I had a friend who, um, before he was a Christian, hiked a mountain, um, at sunset to have a good time um, with his friends that they needed a lighter to have a good time doing. And, and after their good time, the sun had gone down. It was very dark. He said there was like new moon, no moonlight that night. And no one thought to bring a flashlight. And so they were on top of a mountain. All they had was a lighter. And so he said for a while it was fine because we would just literally like do the light and walk forward. But then it ran out of fuel. Uh, like halfway down. And so he said they had to literally flick the flint and then walk and then, and then walk. And then he said his thumbs were like bleeding by the time he got down. Makes me giggle every time. But every person in every culture, right, and every time and place knows that without light, we're not going to make it very far. It's, life's impossible. We can't walk down a mountain without light. You can't walk across a room without light. Because of our tech, though, right, our imaginations have been a few steps removed from feeling the weight of what God's trying to say to us. So we have to kind of sit down for a second and think about it, right? On the biological level, y'all, it's true that plants can't live without light. My wife is always looking for areas in my yard for another raised bed. Um, on the human level, Huh? If the sun went dark, we'd all freeze to death, right? So when Isaiah says, a light has dawned, he's calling to your imagination the rising of the sun. He is saying, the light that's coming into your darkness is like the sun. And so the implication should be clear to us if we have our thinking caps on. This light, this person will have the effect on your soul that the sun has on the earth. Now, I'm not a biologist, but apparently every ounce of biological life on the planet needs the power of the sun in one way or another to survive. Tim Keller points out, notice that it does not say, from the world a light has sprung, but 
upon the world. A light has dawned. It has come from the outside. So, so Christians believe the spiritual vitality that you all long for, the source you need to be emotionally and spiritually alive, will not come from your own intellect or thinking or effort, but rather comes to you as a source from outside of yourself. Or as Isaiah says, dawns on you like the rising of the sun. And just like the sun's brightness and energy and life so far outshine every source known to our planet, so too will this light, this person outshine in brightness and life and energy any other source known to your soul. Those are the clear implications of what this light will do, what this child will do. In his book, Hidden Christmas, Keller notes, God alone then has the life, truth, and joy that we lack and cannot generate ourselves. How can this divine light dawn, or as Isaiah 9 literally says, flash upon us? The text tells us the light comes for a child is born. The child brings it because he is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's remarkable, still reading, that these four titles applied to this child belong to God alone. He is Mighty God. He is Everlasting Father, which means he is the creator, and yet he is born. There is nothing like this claim in any other religion. It's almost too limiting to say that we celebrate this at Christmas. He says, we stare, dumbstruck, lost in wonder, in love and praise, right? Y'all, the Jews were the last people on earth to ever entertain the idea that God would become man. That was sacrilege. That was blasphemy, heresy, right? He who rides on the wings of the wind, whose voice shakes the mountain, become a man? No, the ancient of days? who sits on heaven like a throne and props his feet up on the earth? No, he can't become a man. Now, the Greeks had no problem with that because the Greeks, their gods were just larger versions of themselves, just as corrupt, just as vile, just as evil. But the Jews, Elohim, who spoke creation into existence, would never become a man. He's, he is so holy and other. The human body couldn't contain this God, right? It's one of the reasons, y'all, that the religious people wanted to kill Jesus most of all. It's why the high priest tore his clothes at Jesus' mock trial, right? This was blasphemy of the highest sort. And it's remarkable that some 700 years before Jesus, we find an ancient scroll claiming the exact same things Jesus claimed for himself, that this man would be God incarnate, divinity in flesh, that he was not just a moral teacher to give us an example, but rather God himself come to his own creation, right? Now, I don't know if you were paying attention when when Mike read the beginning scripture, but there's a strange bit in there in about verse four. It starts talking about like tramping warrior battles and tumults and, you know, weird day of Midian. Anyone catch that stuff? Typically, you probably turned your mind off when he read that bit because that's what we normally do. But let, let me read it for us and then let's dig into it just for a second, okay? For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Everyone knows that, day of Midian, right? <laughs> for, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So, so what is he talking about? I mean, these are the sections we skip over, right? Whose shoulder 
What's being broken? And what on earth is the day of Midian? And why are we burning war clothes and boots, right? So let's just look at it, right? In verse three, it makes clear the burden that is being broken is a burden being broken off of the people of God. That's the he that's referring to right there. And it makes clear that, that God is gonna bring a joy to his own people. And in verse four, uh, it pictures them being oppressed. So verse one, the problem is darkness. Verse four, the problem is oppression. And it's the kind of oppression from an enemy who beats you with a rod into submission. And he says, this child is gonna deal with both of these things, the, the darkness and the oppression of the enemy. He says, this light that's coming is gonna, guys, get it, gotta sit with this, man. This light that's coming is gonna take the weapons of the enemy and break them into pieces. Disarm the enemy. That's what it said the light's gonna do. Now, most of us can't relate to slavery and being kind of violent physical oppression that the people of God knew. So when they read this, they knew what it meant. They knew what it felt like to be beaten with a rod into submission. And think about the emotional vitality when someone says, hey, the tool that the weapon has been using to oppress you, it's gonna be shattered into a million pieces and he will lose his power over you. This is remarkable. He's saying he will defeat the enemy that you were powerless under. Now, I'm sure none of y'all can relate to being powerless under enemies of darkness and oppression and sin. But if you can relate to that, God's talking to you right now. If you can relate to being subjected in, in almost, it feels unwilling, but in, in reality it is willing. If you can relate to being crushed down under the weight of your own depravity and sin, God is saying something to you right now. That this man, this light, the whole reason he came was to deal with the things that you feel powerless under. Just like on the day of Midian, right? Yeah, everyone knows the day of Midian, right? What on earth is Midian? You're like, isn't that the divide? Isn't that the highway? Then that's the median. This is, this is Midian, right? So, so this is a reference to Judges 6, 7, right? Where the Midianites were, are, are described as so oppressive and so many that the Israelites had to hide in mountains and caves to survive in darkness. And it said that the Midianites were so many that it was impossible to count them or their camels. And they came like locusts and ravaged the land. I'm just paraphrasing Judges 6 and 7 right now. And, and God tells Gideon, hey, go take these guys out, right? And after, if you're, I don't even remember this story, but you know, after a remarkable and embarrassing amount of disbelief and Gideon testing God over and over and over and over and over again and still doubting, Gideon finally obeys. And he says, yeah, God, I'll, I'll do this. And, and then God says to Gideon, you know, these guys, you know, they're like many as locusts. They're like sand on the shore. You can't count them. He says, the problem is you have too many men. You need less men to take this army out. So God says, tell every man who's afraid he can leave. 22,000 gone, okay? And then on the Lord's instruction, continues to whittle down the Israelite army to 300 people. And then he equips them with a torch in a pot and a trumpet. Makes perfect sense, right? It's what I would want. Like if I'm like going in the arsenal, you know, 
like AKs, machetes, torch and pot trumpet, definitely, right? That's what I'm going to go with, samurai sword. Um, They surround this army, the camp of this army, which had to be expansive, 300 men. And about midnight, God says, all right, here we go, let's do this. They blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. (laughs) When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the enemy, and the army fled. This is the day of Midian. This is a day of trumpets, of broken pots, and lights shining in the darkness. This is a day of victory for the Lord and his people, and his enemies are confused by broken jars and brightly shining lights. What's the point, though? Like, why did God do it and what does this have to do with the child, the light that's coming in Isaiah? Well, Judges 7, 2 tells us exactly. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. This is what the child will do. Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, this light This person will hand the victory to you. And the way in which the battle will be won will do two things at once. It will defeat an enemy that you are terrified of. And it will permanently take away any grounds you think you have to boast. In fact, this light who will break the oppressor's tools of oppression will do it in a way that makes it abundantly clear whose strength is at work and it ain't yours. Because the victory won't be won by natural means like we're used to, right? How do we win victories in battle? Well, by the tools of war, samurai swords and AK-47s, right? Boots and swords. And what does Isaiah say to do with those? He says, you might as well just burn them. You might as well just keep yourself warm at night with them because you ain't gonna need them on this fight. This fight's too big for you. You can't do it. But the child... The light, he can do it. And he is God incarnate. One commentator rightly points out the fascinating overlap of broken pots and lights shining in the darkness of the day of Midian with 2 Corinthians 2 4. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4. For God said, who, who, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Bingo. Isaiah is saying, this is the kind of joy that the light will bring. It's a gospel light. And only the gospel gives a joy that lifts you up and at the same time humbles you. How will God do it? A child. Given. The child's given. That's what it says. He is unto us, his son is what? Given. It's gift. God does this by how? Gift. You get it by how? Receiving. It's bizarre. <laughs> and if it's that simple, why do so few people walk in it? And this is, we'll just end on this, right? 
Let me read you another portion of Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, about receiving gifts, and then we'll get out of here. Consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a Christmas present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon in a wrapper, and you find the other book is Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, for indeed, I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps on some occasion you had a friend who figured out you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that's ever happened to you, you probably found out that to receive that gift meant swallowing your pride. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus requires us to do so. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you are not someone who can pull yourself up together by your bootstraps and live a good moral life. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit you're a sinner that you need to be saved by grace. You need to give up control of your life. That is descending lower than any of us really want to go. Yet Jesus' greatness is seen in how far down he came to love us. Your spiritual regeneration and eventual greatness will be achieved by going down the same path. He descended into greatness. And the Bible says it's only through a kind of descending called repentance that you come into his light. If Christmas is about busy and going into debt and buying gifts, then Advent is about waiting, realizing your own spiritual debt and receiving a gift you could never give yourself. Y'all, life is about to get real busy if it already happened for you, right? And if you, will, if you refuse to slow down and to take time, and as the psalmist says, to put the Lord before you always, you will get to the other end of this season and be just as frazzled and burnt out as you went into it. But if you will learn the art of hitting pause and reflecting and meditating on the scriptures, meditating on where this all started and musing over the meaning of the things that we are rejoicing over, if you'll linger over the darkness, linger over it. What does it mean? If you linger over a light dawning, linger over the burning of the tools of war, linger over God himself coming into his creation, it's possible that this season will actually bring life to you and not just suck the life out of you. Like I said, like this, right? I want to challenge you not to settle for superficial surface level perspectives on this season. And don't let it fly by without pondering the why behind the what. The point of Christmas is that the light has come. I think the question for us all today is, is that good news to you? Or do you prefer darkness to light? Let's stand and pray.